All right, hey, once you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, Again, I just want to start off by saying welcome. So glad you guys are here. My name is Josiah. Um, if you are new here, I would love to meet you after and just say what's up. Uh, we are in Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. Uh, so if you would, turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you a Bible so you can follow along. But Nehemiah chapter 5, that's where we'll be at today. Um, as they're passing out Bibles, I do want to kind of welcome back our Haiti team. So uh, two weeks ago, we prayed over our Haiti team. We had our first international missions trip, which was so exciting. Uh, a team of eight went to Haiti, and they got back last Sunday night. And so I know they had a great, uh, just a great time, great experience. We partnered with eight different churches um, to go to this, um, I guess, location just called Life Song, where they're actually training and teaching just local Haitians how to farm, how, how to do agriculture, giving them jobs. Uh, we got to do VBS. We got to put on a skit. We got to do a pastor's conference. So the, the team that went got to do some incredible things. I believe they said uh, during that time they had six or seven kids just accept Jesus. They had conversations with, and this is a very powerful time. But it's also a very broken area. Um, it's just an area where you not just a lot of poverty, but a lot of uh, physical abuse, spiritual abuse. There's been a lot of things that the church and people have walked through that are painful. And so I just want to keep um, Bercy, the city of Bercy in prayer and Life Song in prayer. And I believe there's a little, little video we're just going to show you kind of a Life Song. I think a, a little recap of the trip. So we'll put that on and then we'll get into our study. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> we love to play things twice. Hey, um, yeah, give it up for our team. Give it up for Life Song. They're doing some amazing things over there. It really is incredible. Uh, we will be partnering again with them. So uh, if, if you just feel led to maybe go one day or be a part of that, we'd love for you to be in prayer about that now. Um, actually, our coffee today is from a worker uh, at, at LifeSong, a Haitian worker who has his own little plot of land, and he makes coffee beans, uh, plants coffee beans, is that how you say it? He makes coffee. And so we have his coffee here. So if you want some coffee after, that's from Haiti. That was brought back. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 5. Hey, this Sunday uh, is something we call Serve Sunday, where we talk about either a ministry or a ministry partner of the church. And I'm going to talk about this kind of not just throughout the sermon, but at the end especially as well. Um, but we are partnering with Compassion International. I know many of you have heard of Compassion. Um, their desire is just to see child poverty just eradicated in the name of Jesus. We just we want to see young kids just have an education, know Jesus, be part of a local church. Uh, they help with food and medical and mentoring. And so um, this is so appropriate for the text we're in Nehemiah 5. I cannot even begin to express how, how good God is because we're in Nehemiah chapter 5 just by going through the Bible. This is also so just a chapter that deals with injustice, poverty, human trafficking, uh, just which fits really well with Compassion's goal and desire to just help uh, just kids in need. So um, we, well, you'll see some of these in the back. We'll, we'll actually point some of these out to you guys, but please look at this, grab a packet. Um, these are not just like a kid's face for marketing reasons. The packet you grab with the name is actually the kid you will be sponsoring. And so we have 25 packets. That what we, that's what we requested. Our desire is to pass out and give out to sponsor 25 kids. We don't want to send these back. We don't want to lose these or misplace these. So I'm even going to give this packet to the back. Um, but my wife and I have been a part of it for about nine years. We sponsor a, a kid named Mubarak who's from Ethiopia. And you can write them letters and they write letters back to you. And it's an incredible thing. And so we would love for you to pray about that. It's $38 a month to sponsor kids, to get them an education, to get them a mentor, to get them plugged into a local church, to get them food. So that is what we'll be talking about. And again, it fits so well. Uh, so Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's um, just kind of do a little overview, and then we'll dive into this. Uh, we, we've been calling this series Holy Ambition. Nehemiah is a guy who sees brokenness in his hometown. He's in the palace. He's in Susa. He's with uh, King Artaxerxes. He's at his right hand. He's a politician in a sense, and his hometown's broken down. And he's so broken by this, he goes to king and asks for permission to go and rebuild, and that's what we've been kind of looking at. And, and we've called this holy ambition for many reasons, just one being we would love to see people take risks again for God's kingdom. Uh, we love to be a group of people who takes risks for God's kingdom. We want to be a church that is willing to kind of sacrifice the comfort to do big things for God. I, I'm praying in this series that God would make clear to some of you here uh, to, my, to just some spe people specifically about what is it God's calling you to do? What does it look like long-term? How do we take risks again for God? How do we have holy ambition? The Bible does talk about and condemn a lot of selfish ambition. We see that selfish ambition has led to a lot of pain and abuse in the world, but there is something in the Bible called holy ambition. 
And holy ambition is when you say, God, what is your heart for the kingdom? How can I be a part of that? How can we help advance the gospel, spread the gospel into all the world? How can I have an ambition, a holy ambition for you that I'm willing to sacrifice my comfort to see the kingdom grow? And so this is really Nehemiah's story. He has a holy ambition to take a risk for God. Now, if you're with us last week in Nehemiah chapter 4, they're building, they're building. There comes some outside persecution, some outside pressure. There's some people who are coming in and basically mocking and belittling them and saying, you're not going to finish this. You're wasting your time. If you guys remember, it literally says that they're building the wall with one hand and in the other, they have like a weapon. And I just love that picture. They're busy about God's work, but they're also ready for battle. And I think that's for us as Christians, that's how we're to live. Be busy about God's work and be ready for the spiritual battle that's happening. So that's kind of how Nehemiah 4 ends. And here's what's really interesting, and please don't miss this. Last week in chapter 4 was there's outside pressure and outside persecution from people on the outside, non-Jews. People who didn't want to see the Jews prosper. But here in Nehemiah 5, it's inward. It's inward persecution. It's inward. It's people internally. It's Jews actually really enslaving other Jews. It's Jews taking advantage of other Jews. It wasn't outside persecution, it was inside. And you really kind of see this throughout the Bible that so often if the enemy can't attack us from the outside, he'll try to attack us from the inside. That if it's not going to be outward, it might be inward. You see that in the church, this happens so often. In Jesus' ministry, this happened. I mean, some of the greatest pressure you could say just came from not an enemy, but from Judas, one of the 12 disciples. That's what led, in a sense, to Jesus' betrayal. I mean, you think about this with Peter in Acts 20. In Acts chapter 20, Peter's speaking to the Ephesians elders, the church elders in Ephesus, and he says, after I leave from you, there's going to be people who come in and appear to be very spiritual, but they're wolves, and they're going to try to harm you and take away from you and do damage to you. And so often in the church, it's not always outside persecution that causes damage, but it's internal persecution. It's internal oppression. It's people maybe just not being a part of the work, but mocking the work. It's people belittling it, saying, well, why aren't we, why aren't you? And we see this in Nehemiah 5. It was the internal things happening that was trying to slow down the work of God. And I think there's so many things we can take away from, but, but here's just one thing specifically. Um, this is a chapter that is pretty heavy. They're literally in such deep poverty and financial pain, they're selling their children to pay off their bills. They're selling their children to pay off their taxes. And not only is it that, but we see the leaders oppressing and using the people the leaders financially manipulating the people. I mean, it's a chapter that's just filled with injustice, and yet there's this glimmer of hope because there's a man who has the fear of God in his life. And so here's what we're going to talk about. The title today is simply Injustice and the Fear of God. Injustice and the Fear of God, and how those things go hand in hand. How when you see something that's unjust, or maybe just you see injustice of some sort, how maybe it's because of a lack of the fear of God. Or if there's people where you see justice ruling and reigning, it's because they have a fear of God. So let's just read Nehemiah 5. We're going to read the whole chapter, verse 1 through 19, and we'll look at this more in depth, all right? Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Let's read what it says. It says, And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. Listen, For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There's a great famine. Verse 4. There were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax in our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them. For other men have our lands and our vineyards. Verse 6, and Nehemiah says, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Verse 7, he says, And after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. You're charging interest, great interest. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Verse 11, restore now to them 
even this day their lands, their vineyards, and also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it, and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and, and required an oath from them that they would do according to the promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his pro- property who does not perform this promise. Even thus, uh, may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Verse 14, moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor, in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. He's showing them now what justice looks like. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work in this wall, and we did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work, and and at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep, and a fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions, because the bondage was heavy on the people. Remember me, my God, for my good according to all that I have done for this people. This is Nehemiah's prayer. Let's pray, and then we'll look at this more in depth. Father, um, we just ask that this story for us, it might seem a little distant. It might seem not very um, practical in the moment, but Lord, we, we do see how real this still is today. Jesus, we just do ask, God, that in our own lives, maybe we have a, a, oppressed others, Maybe we have been oppressed by others. Maybe we have used people, manipulated people. Maybe we've hurt people. Maybe we've been manipulated by others. God, I just ask that you would bring restoration. God, I ask that this would be, would be a morning where we see healing. God, where you would just do something that only you can do. That we would not just um, see this, but that we would feel this, and that we would act, that we would seek to restore as Nehemiah did. Lord, help us be a part of restoration. Help us be a part of helping those who are in poverty. God, I just ask that you would move and that you would speak and that we just hear from you in your name, Jesus. Amen. You know, as we just read, there was a lot of oppression and a lot of injustice in this passage. And here's what I do know. I know for me, it's, it's probably like you. It's easy to read this and kind of feel like this is distant. This maybe doesn't seem practical today. Or it seems like, I'm sorry they were suffering then. I'm sorry they were selling their kids off to slavery for money then. How does this relate to me today? And here's what we got to understand. Obviously, human trafficking is still very real. Oppression is still very real. Real, The wealth taking advantage of the poor and manipulating that situation is still very real. And so for me, rather than just like kind of reading this story, I do want to read some stories that have happened more recently to kind of help us understand what is happening in our context in our day. So I'm going to read a couple stories, and I think this just fits well with, honestly, with Compassion Weekend, with this being a weekend where we say, hey, we want to be the church that loves on people who are broken and need. We want to do something about it. And I know we could read about this in Nehemiah's day and go, okay, well, how, how do we play a part of the, uh, of the solution? How, how do we help this? Um, I just want to read two stories of real people, um, and we'll talk about this, because we still do see injustice and oppression. And let me just even say, if you, if you are younger, this might be a little bit heavy and intense, and for me, this is not fun researching this, this month or this week. This honestly was a very emotional message to prepare for. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, this is Mina's story. Mina was kidnapped from her village in North India by a trafficker and eventually locked up in a 13-girl brothel in the town of Qatar. When she was 11 or 12, the trafficker locked her in a room with a white-haired customer who had bought her virginity. She cried and fought, so the mother and the two sons who owned the brothel taught Mina a lesson. They beat me mercilessly with a belt, sticks, and iron rods, she said. Still, Mina resisted customers despite fresh beatings and threats to cut her in pieces. Finally, the brothel owners forced her to drink alcohol until she was drunk, and when she would pass out, they they gave her to customers. When she woke up, Mina finally accepted her fate as a prostitute. She thought, now I am ruined. So I just gave in. Mina thus joined the ranks of some 10 million children prostituted around the world. More are in India than in any other country. The brothels of India are the slave plantations of the 21st century. Every night, Mina was forced to have sex with 10 to 25 customers. 
Mina's owners also wanted to, to breed her, as is common in Indian brothels. One purpose is to have boys to be laborers and girls to be prostitutes, and a second is to have hostages to, to force the mother to cooperate, to use their kids as hostages, in a sense. So Mina soon became pregnant. The resulting baby girl, Nina, was taken from Mina after birth, as was a son, Vivek, who was born a year later. The two children were raised mostly apart from Mina. Mina alerted the police to her children's captivity. The police were uninterested. So her owners decided to kill her. At that, Mina fled to a town several hours away and eventually married a pharmacist who protected her. Every few months, Mina would go back to the brothel and beg for her children. When Nina, her daughter, turned about 12, the brothel owners prepared to sell her as, as well. At that, Vivek, her brother, protested vigorously. The, the owners beat Vivek, but he continued to plead that his big sister not be sold. Finally, he escaped to search for his mother in hopes that she could do something. Eventually, they found each other. They received help from a terrific anti-trafficking organization called Apni App, run by the former journalist named Rucha Gupta. Mrs. Gupta agitated for a police raid. This was the first raid on behalf of trafficked mother uh, ever in the state of Bihar that rescued Nina last month. This was a while back ago, though. Now, uh, the girl who is now about 13 is still recovering in the hospital from beatings and internal injuries. One more story. This is Sri uh, Pove's story. Sri Pove's family sold her to a brothel when she was six. She was unaware of, of sex, but soon found out. A Western pedophile purchased her virginity, she said, and the brothel tied her to the bed so that he could just rape her. I was so scared, she recalled. I was crying and asking, why are they doing this to me? After that, the girl was in huge demand because she was so young. Some 20 customers raped her nightly, she remembers, and the brothel twice stitched her uh, so that she could be resold as a virgin. This agonizing, painful practice is common in Asian brothels where customers sometimes pay hundreds of dollars to rape a virgin. Most girls who have been trafficked, whether in New York or Cambodia, eventually surrender. They are, they are degraded and terrified, and they doubt their families or society will ever accept them again. But somehow, Sri Pove refused to give in. Repeatedly, she tried to escape the brothel, but she said that each time she was caught, and she was brutally punished with beatings and electric shocks. The brothel, like many in Cambodia, also had a, a punishment cell to break the will of the rebellious girls. As Sri Pove remembers, each time she rebelled, she, she, locked, she was locked naked in the darkness in a barrel half full of sewage, replete with vermin and scorpions that stung her. I asked how long was she punished this way, thinking perhaps an hour or two. The longest she remembered was a week. Customers, of course, are, are the reason trafficking continues, and many of them honestly think that the girls uh, are in brothels voluntarily, but smiles are not always what they seem. Sri Pove even remembers flirting to avoid being beaten. We smile on the outside, she said, but inside we are crying. Yeah, this is a story with a triumphant ending. At age nine, Sri Pove was able to dart away from the brothel and outran the guard, and she found her way to a shelter by, uh, by Somali Mom, an anti-trafficking activist who herself pro was prostituted as a child. Somali now runs the, her foundation to fight human trafficking in Southeast Asia. Sri Pove learned English and has blossomed. Somali has created an army of young women like Sri Pove and have been rescued from the brothels, well-educated and determined to defeat human trafficking. All right, here's just a couple of stories. Um, and I was just trying to read, I was reading a, a lot this week, and it's kind of overwhelming and exhausting. Obviously, these are two stories that represent thousands. I, by no means, even in my preparation for this, it's like, God, help me not, by no means I want to like emotionally manipulate people, but I do want to express the reality of pain and suffering that is happening every day. And it's exhausting when you do kind of either you, you see it firsthand or you go in it or you're aware of it or how, whatever that looks like, it is exhausting. I remember my wife and I just working at four kids and a few people work at four kids, but we would get emails weekly and it, or whatever would happen and say, hey, there's a few kids in need, here are their names. You know, we know the names. It'd say the mom like went to Coconut Creek Casino, just abandoned them in the car. We found a baby in the car and now it's up for foster care. And you just read about things that are happening in our own backyard all the time and you're going, what is going on? I remember talking to a pastor friend who was um, counseling a woman who, back in the day, she was a nurse, and she used to assist in partial birth abortions. And she used to assist the doctor, and she'd help stick the scissors into the back of the baby's head and open the scissors up. And she was a part of this. Just, she'd give me with the pastor just broken by this, going, I, I can't believe I was a part of this. I can't believe I assisted in this. I can hear their cries still. I can see them flinching in the back still. It, would, it just ruined her. It ruined her. She said what got her finally out of it was, and I don't understand, the con I don't know how this makes sense physically, but she said she saw one time when the, the baby was partially out that she saw that the scissors were going in and the baby's hand grabbed onto the scissors and she said she just lost it and ran out and now she's getting counseling with the pastor for that. There's things like this happening all the time. And I think that it does seem distant sometimes. Here we are in South Boca and we normally meet in Deerfield Beach and sometimes we're in, we're in, we're in America, we're in a blessed area. 
sometimes it's hard to see the oppression like this. It's hard to see the injustice. When we do, the question is, what do we do? How do we respond? What, what does this look like? And honestly, I do want to give some practical things what we can do later at the end. Because there are some things we can do. It's not just let's be sad. There are some things we can do. I obviously believe that the gospel of Jesus is the hope of the world. I believe that there's some educational things we should, we should seek to inform people. We should seek to teach people. We should seek to teach them how to be safe and avoid. There, there's, there's so much more, though. There's some law enforcement things. There's some great ministries that partner with law enforcement and help stop some of these things. Incredible things. But I'm, I'm, I'm exp- expressing this because this was Nehemiah's reality. Parents were in such need financially and were under such heavy pressure with taxes and selling their lands, their vineyards, their homes. Eventually, they had to sell their children. They had to sell their children for money to pay, to pay their bills. And this is from Jews enslaving other Jews. And Nehemiah's going, what is going on? We were just slaves for 70 years in Babylon, now under King Cyrus. We we're just slaves, and now we're enslaving our own people. Like, what is going on? And his reaction, I think, is so appropriate. I think we should understand this context to help us understand our context. Because I do believe, just like God says, there is injustice happening and how we respond is essential. Just like today, there's injustice happening and how we respond is essential. Amen? Would you agree? So let's just talk through a few things we learned from this story and how we can maybe talk about it today. Um, A few, I think, character things we even see here. So here's the first three things. So we need to recognize the problem, we need to respond appropriately, and we need to seek to restore all things. All right, so this is the Christian desire for us, honestly. When it comes to, like, how do we uh, live out the gospel daily amongst oppression and justice, we should recognize, recognize a problem, respond appropriately, and we're going to seek to restore and make all things new in the name of Jesus. Amen? It's the big picture of this. So let's just look at this, number one. Uh, recognize, recognize the problem. What is the problem specifically with Nehemiah? Can we read verse one again? Let's just read that really quick. It says, and there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brethren, their own Jewish people, for there were those who had said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us, uh, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and our vineyards and our houses that we might buy grain because of this famine. There are also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and our vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. Slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. Verse 15 also says, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people. So what is going on? Um, There's a great famine. So there's an economic crisis. The economy is collapsing. Uh, They're in deep poverty. Their vineyards aren't really working. You know, there's a, there's a famine in the land. They're selling their vineyards. They're selling their homes. They're selling it to the wealthy just to try to get a little bit of money. Eventually, they have to sell their own children. They sell their own children. They're going, we, how do we get our children back? We want to buy our children back, but there's no, like, economic structure here. We don't know how to fix this. The king's taxes are high. The governor's taxes on us are incredibly high. What do we do? How do we fix this? And, and here's, like, the first thing and why this is necessary. We do need to recognize the problem. You and I, I think, uh, we've talked about this with Nehemiah. He's very good about trying to diagnose things before he just acts. We don't want to just react and just do things. We really want to know, like, what is the deep-rooted issue here? What is the idol behind the idol here? Is it really just a desire for wealth? Like, what is it? What is it really behind this, this problem? You know, in Deuteronomy 23, we're actually told specifically they're not to do what they're doing. Jews were not to tax other Jews with interest. Deuteronomy 23, verse 19 says, You shall not charge interest to your brother interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. This is like a command the Jews are to live by, and yet they're, they're doing this. They're charging interest to their fellow Jews. And Nehemiah is like losing it. Nehemiah gets very angry, which we'll talk about. But I want us to see something specifically. Um, he says, obviously, very clearly in verse 6, if you want to look down at verse 6, he hears this injustice. He hears about them being slaves, and he goes, and I became very angry. And I'm very thankful for this verse. This is a good verse. Um, I think as Christians, we understand, like, it is okay to get angry. We should, we should talk about that. It's okay to be angry, obviously, about the right things. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. There's something about hearing about this, and you go, I need to speak up. I need to say something. I need to do something. I need to, I need to get involved in some way. Uh, in Proverbs chapter uh, 31, this is what it says. We'll put the verse up here. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. It's pretty clear. 
Speak up. Speak up for the poor and helpless. See that they get justice. This word justice in Hebrew is mishpat and basically just means giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. It's like, how do I give them, whether it's punishment, maybe it's care, meeting a need. How do we seek justice? Uh, in Isaiah 61.8, it says, I, the Lord, I love justice. I'm so glad we serve a God who loves justice, who says, let's right those wrongs. Let's help the needy. And let's not just like recognize the bad. Let's just actually bring balance and sense back to this. Let's seek to restore this. God's like, I love justice. And here's Nehemiah's response. Here's what he recognizes, and he gets very angry. And again, we should talk about this. Because there's something healthy I really do believe about getting angry about the right things. Uh, first, first of all, I want to say this, because we're not, we're not God. My anger is not ever really perfectly pure like God's. I love the Bible says it describes God as God is merciful and compassionate, long-suffering, Old Testament and Exodus, and then it says slow to anger. He's slow to anger. So it, it takes some things for him to get there, but he, he, can, he gets angry. We should actually love and celebrate the fact that our God is a God of justice, and yes, joy, and yes, love, but that he's also a God of wrath. The Bible describes the wrath of God many times, and that shouldn't be offensive to us. It actually should be, when we read stories about these girls who are being raped 20 times a night, we should be very thankful for the wrath of God, for the wrath of God as weird as that sounds. We should be thankful that our God is just. We should be thankful that our God seeks to restore and make all things new. We should be thankful for the, those characteristics of God. And the Bible describes them as slow to anger. Now, here's, here's what it plays out for us. I think, sadly for us, we kind of now, maybe because of social media, which I don't want to fully blame, but we kind of get angry about something, and then it turns into, sadly, like hateful vengeance. We're like, it turns into this person or this party's against me, and I'm against this party, they're against me, and we kind of create these great divides. Like, we have maybe originally, like, we should be angry about that, but now it turns into, like, this hate speech, hateful vengeance, and definitely we've taken it too far, and hopefully Christians don't participate in that. It's okay to be angry, as the Bible says, and not sin. Be angry and don't sin, and that's difficult. Most of us get angry and then sin. (laughs) But there's a way to be angry and not sin. There's a way to be angry like Nehemiah and get involved in the right things, and this is what he does. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, who is just like kind of like a, a good theologian slash philosopher, he wrote a book called, what was it called? Uh, the Myth of Neutrality. The Myth of Neutrality. Like you can't just really be neutral about things, which I think is a good title. Here's what he says. He says, there are times in which anyone with a shred of moral principle should be pro- profoundly angry. And we live in such times. This is back in his day. He's like, if you have a, a shred of morality in you, like, there should be times where you're angry, and he goes, and this is that time. It, it is okay to have that appropriate response to sin and injustice and oppression, and obviously we've got to talk about what to do with it, but that is necessary. Here's why this is so important. The religious people in Jesus' day, they did all the th- right things, but they just forsook justice, and that's what concerns me. So for example, in Luke eleven forty two, Jesus said this. He goes, Pharisees, woe to you, Pharisees. Listen, woe to you, Pharisees. He goes, you tithe mint and rue. You tithe, you tithe even your herbs and all manner of herbs, and yet you pass by justice. Just hear that. He goes, you're so religious. When you get your herbs, you set aside a 10% of your herbs. You're so religious. Good, good for you. Like you, you tithe everything. You, you pass by justice. And he says, in the love of God. I don't want the church to be guilty of this. I don't want to be guilty of we do those religious things or those re- religious routines, but we just, we just pass by overlook justice. We're that you know, Jew, Jewish priest in the Good Samaritan story who sees the man who's broken and goes, well, I'm a Jew. I can't touch this guy. I can't touch this you know, Gentile dog, and I'll just keep walking. But it's the Samaritan who, who stops. M- my thing is, how, how do we not pass by justice? How do we actually participate in justice? The problem with religion was it often passed by justice. He's saying we need to participate now in this. Proverbs 14 says, he who oppresses the poor, listen, he who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. It's, it's interesting how, how the Proverbs say, if I want to honor God, I'm going to honor the needy. If I want to honor God, I'm going to help. I'm not going to pass by this anymore. You know, here's what I want to point out. When I say recognize, number one is this. Do we catch verse 10 where verse 10 Nehemiah says, I'm part of the problem? Look at verse 10 again. Please read verse 10, because this kind of stood out to me, and I had to stop and think about this and go, what is he saying? Uh, He says, I also, I, I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Just that Nehemiah goes, I'm part of the problem. He's realizing he's a wealthy noble, came from a palace. He comes to this broken down city of Jerusalem. People are in need. He has 
what they need. He's lending to them at usury, and he goes, we need to stop. I am lending money. Let us stop this. We need us. I'm part of the problem. He's not just going, you're the problem. Again, I know we, this is just Nehemiah's character. We saw this in chapter one when they came back, and they're like, Jerusalem's broken down, and he's, he's repenting of his own sins. Nehemiah is the kind of guy that's not, he's not just ready to point fingers and say, they're the problem, but he's going, it's, it's me. I would, it, the church, again, I think we could really um, learn a lot from this before we say this party, this person, this, this whatever, if we could say, I'm the problem. I know we talked about last week with Eric here, and it's so good, the G.K. Chesterton quote, like, what's wrong with the world? And he said, dear sirs, I am. I so agree with that. H- how do we have that response? Not, oh, I wonder what's wrong with the world. Have you read about this person or this part? Like, how do we say it's, it's us? He goes, I'm doing this. We need to stop. Recognize the problem. Hey, and here's the questions you have to ask, and I have to ask. Is there a way, or, or is there... Is there a time in your life, currently or in the past or recently, you have been oppressing people, manipulating people, using people, hurting people? Are you maybe being used by people or manipulated by people? Are you, being, are you the oppressor? Are you being oppressed? Nehemiah is going, I'm the oppressor in this. I'm seeing it, but I'm also part of that problem. You know, we might not think we're part of the problem, but I think we have to recognize you guys we are. There's something that does break my heart because we, we can read these stories and go, that's terrible. I can't believe there's this perverted men out there who do this. And yet you have Christians who all the time are just logging in on these websites, watching pornographic videos, adding to human trafficking, giving money to this, continuing the problem over and over, perpetuating the problem. We think, oh, whatever, it's just a show, it's just entertainment, and yet it, pornography costs everybody something. The person doing it, the person watching it, it's costing everybody something, and we're adding to this cycle. And we go, whatever, it's just fun, it's just good, it's just entertainment, it's just, you know, GOT, it's just no big deal, and it's like, do we know what we're adding to? Do we see the culture that we're creating with this? I think we have to recognize that we are part of the problem. I don't think there'll ever be full repentance if we don't see the problems with us. There'll never be full restoration if we don't say, I'm part of the problem. Nehemiah is doing something very difficult. He's, as a leader, saying, I'm confessing my sin, and this is difficult for me, but this is the first step in restoration. So he recognizes the problem. Can we agree? Number two, what does he seek to do? He responds. Look at verse seven. Look at his response. Verse seven. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who are sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and they found nothing to say. (laughs) Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. All right, he responds to it. And notice that first phrase in in verse seven where he just says, after serious thought. Like he gets very angry and then he's like, after serious thought, he's like, I need to chill out. I need to cool down a bit. Uh, This is good. I think for those of you who just get angry all the time, like chill out a little bit, all right? Um, it's okay, like we, a, biblical anger, we do, so that's good, but he's like, I needed to calm down a little bit. And then I, after serious thought, it's funny because I'm the kind of guy where if I get angry about something, I feel like I just need to go take a nap afterwards. Like all my emotions roll up. I'm like, oh, I'm so angry. I'm like, I'm gonna go take a nap because I'm really, I don't know what, it, but that's what he's doing. He's like, after serious thought, I thought about it for a little bit. I, I, and then he was like, called an assembly together or rebuked them publicly. They were silenced. Like he responded appropriately, but here's why. And here's the key to me. When I say we can't just talk about injustice, we have to also talk about the fear of God. Verse 9 says, you are doing this because you do not fear God. Actually, if you even look at verse 15, if you look at verse 15, why don't you just read that verse really quick? He says, uh, at the end, he says, yes, even the servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. So twice, he, he points this out. He goes, you're doing this, you don't fear God. When I became the governor, and he becomes the governor, by the way, in verse 14, he's like, when I became the governor, I had certain governor rights, and he goes, and I did not exercise those rights because the people were broken in need, so why would I just add to what I have? He goes, so I, I didn't do that because I feared God. Here's the thing, we got us up with the fear of God. I think there is a lot of injustice because people don't have the fear of God. I think the fear of God, this is, who, in 2019, it's like, coming to a young, you know, church in a sense, you're going like, oh, we're talking about the fear of God today. Like, that's not really a common thing, but we, we should talk more about the fear of God. There's something beautiful about the fear of God. The Bible has a lot to say about the fear of God. I remember being a little kid, and my dad, when I was like 
I remember like seven or eight years old, my dad had like a little family Bible study in the living room. And he, he's like, the topic today is on the fear of God. I'm like, oh my gosh. I remember being like, someone, he's, like, he's done with the sermon or done with his little 10-minute Devo. And he like, I, I remember like freaking out. I'm like, dad, but doesn't God love us? He's like, absolutely. And I'm like, I have to fear him? He's like, absolutely. I'm like, I don't get this. I remember like freaking out. And he's like, just, just wait till I'm done. I'll try to explain more. And I was like, no, I don't get this. And he had like pulled me aside later and be like, hey, you know, you can have a deep love. God loves you as a father to his son, but he's also God and you're not. And I remember like having to have like understanding of what is the fear of God? God is God and you're not. I think that's just a great definition. The fear of God is God is God, I'm not. And praise God for that, by the way. Praise God, I'm not God and you're not God. That'd be terrifying. But he's God and and we're not. There's a side of this where he's my friend, as John 15 says. There is that like brotherhood. Like there's like what a friend we have in Jesus so true, but he's also God. And there should be this sense of awe and reverence and deep kind of like sense of the person and majestic, just God himself, who his very nature, his attributes, he speaks the world into existence. I mean, God is God. This is incredibly humbling. You know, Proverbs says a lot about the fear of the Lord, and it actually talks a lot about injustice. You know, if in Nehemiah 5, I want to encourage you, when you read through Proverbs and you're like 31 days of reading Proverbs, because that's all we read every day for some reason, um, you will catch this theme though of there's poverty, there's poor, there's injustice, and then there's people who fear God. And you just see how they go hand in hand. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7, here's a few verses we'll throw up for you. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7, you know it, says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 8 13, the fear of the Lord is what? Tate evil. Proverbs 16, 6, by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. I want you to kind of see, in a sense, in some ways, a progression. He's like, when you fear God, you're beginning to get wisdom and knowledge. If people boast in their, their wisdom and yet don't fear God, I wonder like, how much they really have. He goes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. To fear the Lord is not just to hate evil, you're departing from it. You don't just go, I, in theory, I hate it. You're like, I'm running from it because I have the fear of God in my life. And then I love the positive spin. <laughs> He's like, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. People who like live in that fullness of life, and they have that, like they have a joy, but yet there's, they, they have the fear of God in them. God's like, you want life? Have fear, which just seems so counter to us. You want a fullness of life? The fountain of life? Fear God. What an interesting way of putting it. You know, God asked this question to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 5, 22. Uh, just a good question, so I want to ask it. He says this, will you not tremble at my presence? <laughs> Jeremiah's like, absolutely, all I do is tremble. Like, God's like, if I were to show up, will you not tremble at my presence? When, any, when anyone ever encountered God in the Old Testament, like whenever there's a theophany, like God exposed himself to someone, it's like they say, I fell over as a dead man. Woe to me, for I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. Like there's constantly this like sense of your oddness, your amazingness overwhelms me to this point of just fear. Like I don't even know how to respond at this point. And this is what the Bible says at the beginning of wisdom. Just when, you ha- when you understand God is God and, and you and I are not. You know, it's funny. Um, as a kid, I did have this, my dad, like I said, tried to explain this to me. And even as a young age, like, I knew my dad loved me, but I still had a fear of my dad. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Like, if you, remember your mom, like, always threatened you, like, well, when your dad gets home, you're like, oh, no. Like, I didn't know what that meant. I'm like, not when dad gets home. Like, there's, like, there's, like, this some sort of ominous, maybe fear attached. I knew he loved me, but there's almost this fear. I remember when I was, like, 22, this might sound weird, but maybe the guys might appreciate this. I remember when I like, 21, 22, I'm like, oh, my goodness. I'm, like, 22. My dad's, like, 62. I can beat up my dad now. I remember that thought of like, I can actually take my dad. And it was like, yes, I don't know why. That kind of, I th- I think, I'm pretty sure I can. Um, but the, the thought, it's funny, like there's never that thought with God, obviously. Uh, but just that thought of even though I, I might be physically stronger, there's still that awe and respect for him. There's still that fear. He's still, I love him. He loves me. And there's still that fear in a sense. My point is, I do think injustice and oppression happens because people don't know their maker. Imagine people knowing that God, Emmanuel, God with us. Would they do that act to that child? Absolutely not. They'd fall over as a dead. Like there's no, there's, there would be no way there would be that, we would see that today. I think we need to get back to this understanding of the fear of God. I think the fear of God needs to be taught. I think it needs to be practiced. I think it needs to be, li- it needs to be lived out and expressed. The fear of God causes us to do things we would never want to do. We would never choose to do. The fear of God has caused me to do things I don't want to do, but I'm like, I know I need to do this. So there's a woman named Paige Brown who, who wrote this. She said this. Please listen to this long quote, but it's so good. 
She says, it is not the fear of God unless we at various times are motivated to do what we would never do otherwise. I get it into my mind that the people who are really about God's business just naturally love it, right? But did Noah like animals? Did Moses like camping? Did Ruth like gleaning? (laughs) Did Daniel like living abroad? Did John the Baptist like confrontation? Did Paul like prison? Did Nehemiah like construction? These people did not love their assignments. They feared the Lord. And those who were the assignments he gave them, and those were the assignments he gave them, that's the motivation. Not the love for the thing, but the fear of the Lord. T'was grace that taught all those hearts to fear. That fear was foundational, relational, and motivational. So true. There's something about the fear of the Lord that goes, I would never normally do that. I would never normally give that. I would never normally serve in that way. But the fear of God causes you to do some beautiful things. To do some things that are hard and difficult, but yet they're so restorative by nature. This is the fear of God. You know, in James chapter 2, can we just, actually, can you just turn there really quick? Because the fear of God should motivate and change. So James chapter 2, if you want to turn there, it's right after Hebrews you can turn to James 2. If not, we'll just throw the verses, I believe, up here, but it's, it's cool to turn your Bible. Uh, James chapter 2. Look at verse 15. James 2, verse 15. James says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is saying, obviously your faith in God should lead to action. We're not saved by our actions. Our actions do not save us. Our good, the good things we do, by no means they save us, but they are a sign that we are saved. Martin Luther put it this way, uh, probably put it the best. He says, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. You're not going to see someone in need and be like, oh, you're cold? Be warm, my brother. Like, that's evil. That's not good. He's like, you're like, hey, do you need a shirt? Here's a blanket. If you're hungry, here's food. There's some, you're going to respond appropriately. You know, there's a verse, James 2.19, just two verses later. James points out and says, just faith by itself, it's, it's not enough. He goes, even demons believe in God and tremble. See, you can still have a fear of God and tremble, but does that fear lead you to action? Does that faith lead you to action? Just because you have a fear of God, the demons do. They, trem- they tremble. They probably show more emotion than most people. They tremble because they know who they're dealing with, but it doesn't lead them to action. It doesn't lead them to fruit. The point is, he goes, our fear, our faith in God should lead to some sort of action, some sort of change in this. You know, in verse 9, he basically says, we need to change, you guys. Why? And he says this verse, he goes, because the, nat- the nations are basically watching. Because for the reproach of the nations. Because the nations are mocking our God and mocking us. We should fear God. I think Christians, we can give our own selves the worst reputation, the worst rap, because you don't have to know that they're watching. You've you got to see this. You've got to be aware of the reproach of the nations. We need to repent. We need to have the fear of God. They're watching. They're looking and saying, does the fear of God do anything different in your life? Does it make you live differently? Is this all just a bunch of games to you where you just come to church and leave and there's no change? Do you look different than the normal person, than the average person without Jesus? If with Jesus, we should look completely different. And that's what he's describing. See, not only do we recognize the problem, but we respond. He calls them together, he rebukes them publicly, and then thirdly, and we'll end with this, he restores. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, the first word, say the first word. One, two, three, go. (laughs) First word, restore. That was really bad. Let's try again. Verse 11, say the first word. Restore, restore now to them. Even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain and the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it, and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath for, from them, and they would do according to their promise. Then he, Nehemiah's like, I shook out the, the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and, and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, this is good, I agree. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. So good. He's like, you need to not just say, I'm sorry. That's not enough. I don't know if you've ever, maybe someone's hurt you and wrong. You're like, I'm sorry. You're like, mm, that's not enough, right? You're like, that's, oh, you're sorry you used me for so many, you know, there's something like rest- restore. 
So th- there might be a time where you, obviously, I think, obviously, obviously we're called to forgive. If someone hurt us or wronged us, Jesus tells us to forgive 70 times 7. We need to forgive. We need to release the debt. We should seek to release the debt. But on the other hand, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who maybe hurts someone else, we should seek to restore. It might be more than I'm sorry. It might be, hey, I, I maybe took this from you. I need to pay it back. I maybe took this from you. I need, to, I need to write you a letter expressing something or maybe going a little bit deeper with you. I maybe need to restore. Restoring can look like a lot of different things. And I think we maybe need to seek to restore, not just respond, not just react, not, but like help me. He's literally saying, I'm giving you the houses back. I'm giving you the vineyards back because I'm not just saying, you know, oh, it's okay. Don't pay me back the taxes. I'm just give, I'm giving it back to you. I'm restoring it back to you. And there's a guy named William Wil- Wilberforce, who many of you know, was really used mightily by God just in, the, in England in the 18th century to really abolish slavery. And he was actually a politician. And this was not a popular belief then. Here's a white English guy going, hey, I want to completely change the economy. Slavery is evil. We need to give it up. He was a Christian saying, we're all made in the image of God. What are we doing? This is evil. He lost a, a lot from that. He had to sell things and sell some of his property, if you know his story, to pay, to pay for things, to pay back things, to try to get policies in place. He had to do a lot. He had to give up a lot. He had to give up a lot of his reputation. He had to give up a lot to end something he knew that needed to be ended. The point is, if there really is injustice and oppression, which there is, we might have to give up a lot. We might have to restore. We might have to do hard things. We might have to do uncomfortable things. We might have to do budgetary things. I mean, this changed the nobleman's budget, <laughs> everything about it. It changed a lot. But Nehemiah is like, it's not just good enough to, to recognize. You need to restore, restore it to them and make a covenant in front of all these people. And Nehemiah, even when he becomes the governor, goes, I was able to have the governor's provisions, and I didn't. He talks about what he did have. He kind of throws it in there. He's like, well, there's 150 of us, and we got like an ox, and we got some sheep. You know, He's like, I did eat that, but I didn't take above and beyond that. And he even says in verse 19, God, remember what I've done. Do you notice that little prayer, the little prayers in Nehemiah? He goes, verse 19 again says, remember me, oh my God, according to all that I've done for this people. God, even if the people don't remember, even if they don't recognize, you remember, you see this. A guy named Matthew Henry said it this way. He says, if men forget me, let my God think on me, and I, I desire no more. His thoughts, usward, are our happiness. If men ever remember me, God remembers me. See, Nehemiah says we can't just say this was wrong, we need to restore and do something about it, and it's going to cost us, it's going to cost you, and let's get to work. And here's the thing, I do, in a sense, I'm not, there's so much we could be a part of. There's so many good things we could be a part of. For us, when I was thinking about even compassion this, this week, it's not even like an announcement of, hey, let's do this. It's like, we're going to be a part of this for a long time to come. There is child poverty, and there's brokenness, there's, there's lack of education, and lack of mentoring, and a lack of health supplies, and it's like, hey, we can actually be a part of helping with medical, helping with education, helping with mentoring, most importantly, getting the gospel to them through a Christian organization that loves Jesus and uses their budget very well, and you can look into it more, but it's just, we're going to be a part of this for a long time to come. This will be one of the ways we want to be a part of restoration. One of the ways is for kids. You know, we've, we've talked about them, we will talk about them. I really do believe some of you here will foster kids. You will open up your home to them. I do believe that God's going to challenge us and say, be a part of the oppression locally and just be a part of the oppression internationally. Be a part of this. Be a part of the injustice in this way. I think God's going to stretch us in this. A question I wrote down is, what does restoration look like globally and how can we respond? How can we restore those who are oppressed? What does this look like? How does restoration really look like? Can I really be part of the solution? And for kids who are dying of hunger, you can. For kids who need medical needs or just need mentoring and education needs, you can through this local uh, organization called Compassion. We want to be a part of it. There's one thing we're going to do. See, here's something I want to, before I even get into that too much, here's something I want to point out. We serve a God who recognizes the injustice and took on the injustice. When Jesus walked into the temple and saw that they're selling things at a crazy rate to make profit, he overturns the tables, and what did he say? This was supposed to be a house of prayer, but he turned it into a den of thieves. And Jesus saw injustice, and he took it on, and he, he did something about it, not just through the table turning, but through taking on the cross. Through really just, he goes, let me take on all of the unjust, all the things that people have done to you or you've done to others, I'm going to take the pain and punishment of that. I'm going to seek to restore you and them. I'm going to seek to redeem this situation and seek to redeem this moment. And Jesus for us is that great example of the restorer of all things, the one who seeks to make all things new. And so we as a church get to join him in the work of restoration. 
You know, some of the things we try to talk about here as our church family is we are a community following Jesus, seeking the glory of God, the good of the people, and the renewal of South Florida. The renewal would be incorporate this. How do we get involved in the education system? How do we get involved in mentoring? How do we get, maybe get involved in prison ministries? And it's not us. It's, it's, it's this body of Christ. It's right here. This is how we're going to do it in this room right here. How do we get a part of just the poverty issues that we see globally, and we're going to be a partner with different ministries that are doing this and doing this well? And we want to be part of the restoration process of Jesus making all things new and bringing life and healing and hope through the gospel of Jesus. Amen? We're going to be part of this. A guy named John Stott, a great theologian, said this, and I just want to point this out, last thought. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship God, a God who was immune to it? You see, there really is oppression, there really is injustice, there really is a lot of brokenness all around. And we have a God who's not just in heaven going, oh, I'm so sorry. We have a God who entered creation and took that on himself and was not immune to pain and suffering himself. I'm so thankful for just really the Christian worldview as a whole. We're saying my God knows and can relate, can relate better than any other worldview. My God actually knows what it's like to suffer and to suffer to the extreme. My God knows what it's like to take on oppression and justice and seek to restore and make all things new. And then he just says, hey, church, join me in this. And that's what we want to do. So we are gonna, we're going to pray. We're going to worship. But I can't let this just be like an announcement. Like, hey, we have compassion. Like, it can't be an announcement. It's going to be a part of our DNA. Did we get that? We only have 25 packets. So we have 25 packets because, honestly, we didn't want to send any back because this is, uh, this is w- Winnelin. Um, this child here, if this were to get lost, he'd be like lost in the system. It'd take a while for them to recover him. We want to fill this out. We want to turn this back in immediately. Um, this is not just a marketing ploy. This, these are the real kids, the real names of the kids that you'll be writing letters to and getting to know. And so there's 25 packets in the back. It is $38 a month. This does not go to us. This goes to Compassion. I believe there's like an 80-20 rule where 80% of their funds go to the kids, 20% go to admin fees. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Um, I would just say we want to be a part of this. Like I said, we've been sponsoring a kid for nine years. Well, we're on to our second kid because I think the first one basically graduated through it. Um, but we're, we're being sponsor, sponsoring a kid now, um, Barrick from Ethiopia for nine years. We're going to continue to be a part of it. We're going to ask that you be a part of that with us. Amen? We're going to pray. We're going to worship. We're going to end with a couple of little closing thoughts. We're going to let you go to the back, talk to some of our leaders there, see how you can get involved. And uh, we want to be a part of the restoration process. Father, um, what comes to my mind right now is how we're told in Hebrews to pray for those who are in prison, to pray for those who are hurting and in need, and um, Jesus, we want to do that. There is the church all around us globally who are being oppressed, who cannot study the Bible freely and openly like we can right now, who cannot worship you and talk about you and share you. (laughs) Lord, we are so thankful for the rights we have, and God, we want to use them. We want to pray for those who maybe don't have these certain freedoms we have. Jesus, encourage them. Continue just to build them up. God, I just pray for the church, for our church specifically, that we'd be part of the restoration. We'd not just be moved emotionally, that we'd not just get angry like Nehemiah, but that our anger would actually lead to restoration. It would lead to healing. And so God, we thank you for four kids, for compassion, for different ministries, that things we get to be a part of ourselves, God, to seek to bring hope to families in need. And so we just ask, God, that you'd pour out your spirit, that we'd see more people come to know you as we meet real tangible needs, that we'd not just see be warm and be filled, but that we would do something, Jesus. So we thank you. We just want to praise you now and ask that you would lead us and guide us by your Holy Spirit. In your name, amen. Let's stand and we'll close our time with some worship and then some closing announcements.